The idea at the heart of my book, How to Begin, is that we unlock our greatness by working on the hard stuff. Now, when I wrote the first draft of that book, or it's actually more like the third draft, and I shared it with friends, the feedback I got was it was confusing and a deeply underwhelming mess. And so when I picked myself up off the floor and I picked through the rubble to see if there's anything that could be rescued, the most precious thing was in fact that line, we unlock our greatness by working on the hard stuff. But here's the rub. What's that saying is this, how will you disrupt what's comfortable for you now? How will you stir things up? How will you confuse and disappoint and anger some people around you? How will you make them, and you, nervous? My friend Whitney Johnson has taken the idea of the S-curve, a tool previously used in understanding the growth of companies, and applied it to our growth as well. And the top of the S-curve is the plateau. Now, when you step up and you work on the hard stuff, you step forward into the unknown and to that ambiguity, you find something thrilling and important and daunting, well, you free yourself from the plateau. And you find yourself at the bottom of a new S-curve. The adventure begins once more. So take a breath and put on your seatbelt because things are about to get interesting. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. I first came across Tony Stubblebein because he started really the first habit tracker app back in the day, Coach.me. And he turned that into a successful coaching business, in part by becoming one of the most successful writers on Medium, a platform devoted to publishing writing about human stories and ideas. And I'm going to come back to Medium in just a minute. Now, back then, quite frankly, things were pretty sweet for Tony. My businesses were mostly running well, which is a rare thing. If you've ever run a business, they rarely run well, but they're running well and without a lot of oversight to the point that I was telling people I'm half retired. Half retired. You know, I remember hearing Dan Sullivan, who's the founder of Strategic Coach, also author of a number of books, saying that when they retired old machinery, they basically just took it out to the field to rust. So not everybody wants to be retired or even half retired. It was an interesting moment that you were involved in because I had a preview copy of your book, How to Begin. And there's like this idea of this, a worthy goal. And I was, I was feeling, I was itching for a worthy goal. A worthy goal, something thrilling and important and daunting. A project that calls you forth, demands your time and your focus and resources. We unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. Now, when you get itchy feet, when you get restless like this, sometimes opportunity comes knocking. You remember me talking about Medium. I got a chance over the summer to apply to be the second CEO. The founding CEO wanted to step down, and I was close enough to the situation to know that that was happening. I said, you know what? I think no one knows Medium better than me. It was a bold claim, but Tony knew he could back it up. But every worthy goal offers rewards, but extracts a price, prizes and punishments. You might have heard me mention that before. So Tony was weighing up his choice. I have this like uh, selfie of myself during the interview process to remind myself of 
what I would be giving up. And the selfie is me in a pool on a floaty, smoking <laughs> a cigar, 3 p.m. on a work day. You know, right. just like I could do that. And uh, but I was itching for more. And this job, I was like, wow, this job will test me like nothing. No other opportunity I've had. And I'm a big believer in the way you can change people's lives through great writing. And I thought, well, you know, if I can help to grow medium, it can have a big impact on people's lives, which is something that was always important to me. Where did the starting businesses or running businesses bug start? Do you know when you first noticed that? Yeah. Uh, I I like to say it's because I'm sort of, uh, I backed into it in that I'm kind of a, a late bloomer. You know, there's this world of entrepreneurs that feel like, you know, if you haven't started by the time you're 22, you'll never right. amount to anything. And it's more, I just kept being dissatisfied at work because it mm. turns, I didn't understand this about myself is that, I'm very sensitive to impact. I want I want to see how the work that I did mattered. I don't just want to be paid for it. I just I don't just want my boss to pat me on the back. I want to actually feel that connection. And so the first job I ever had was, was incredibly meaningless. We did uh um I'll say I worked for Mastercard. We built basically brochureware website for banks that Mastercard did business with. I'm sure no one ever looked at these websites <laughs> and, you I've know, done those and, jobs. I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> and people were happy there. It was an easy job. I was not stressed. I was good enough at it. I was paid well. Yeah. I could see a comfortable life ahead of me. I thought, this is just not why mm. um, I got into tech. I, you know, I got into tech because I love it. And so I thought, oh, well, so I was dissatisfied. So I jumped to a more interesting job and then I got dissatisfied there. And so then I jumped to an even more dis uh, interesting job. In this job, the first time I worked at a startup, this company, Odeo, to the podcasting startup, which yeah, was that. 18 years ahead of its time. Like, here we are on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. and, like, podcasting is real and established. And we thought, oh, it's right on the cusp, right? And <laughs> we were easily 10 years too early. Yeah. But Odeo is a little bit famous in tech circles as the company that Twitter spun out of. So I was part of that team that built the first version of Twitter. Um, but I was, again, dissatisfied there because I felt like the thing that I went to work on, Odeo, we we're walking away from. And so I felt like, why did I bother doing all of this work? And that's when I got the buck. I said, right. I cannot trust other people. <laughs> I, mean, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have a lack of trust. And I was yeah. like, I... Yeah, I cannot trust my, you know, I cannot put my career in the hands of other people. Yeah. And so, um, uh, so I thought, well, I've got to start my own business. Of course, I knew nothing and I was terrible at it. And it was like such a barely break even type of business, but it was great just to cut my teeth on anything, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's where the bug came from. And how did you start figuring out? <laughs> the impact you wanted to have. Um, yeah. I mean, this goes into like, none of this was pre-planned because that yeah. first business, it was, I was looking at it as a test of myself. It was like, can I do this? I mean, all I'd ever done at that point was write software. Like I'd never yeah. done the product. I'd never done the design. I'd never done the marketing. I'd never done the sales. I'd never done the books. And, um, 
And so I really just wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. But around the time that I started to, I started to be a living, I started to realize like the product that I'm, that I'm selling is not important to me in any fundamental deep way. And so I had to do a um, self-evaluation of, well, what yeah. is important? Who am I? And I, I look, kind of looked over like a lifelong set of interests. And I'm like, I've just always been interested in the backstory behind, behind how many people, how people achieve things. Like I, I'm not a believer in talent particularly because you get into it and the backstory is always something else. It's opportunity and work and um, sort of um, a phrase I use sometimes that is advantage training. It's mm -hmm. like, you had the experiences that get, that let you learn how to do it better than other people. And, and that, that those experiences are an advantage for you. And so I, I wanted to build, I wanted to build things that help people along those lines. And so that's when I felt like when I started that, the company before medium lift that then became coached at me, uh, I thought, Oh, well now I'm in my sweet spot. Like this is, you know, I will be running it, so I'll be in control of whether we have impact on mm -hmm. the world, and it will be something that is um, more core to my interests, and it will fulfill, I guess, you know, I'd have to say, like, I get really dissatisfied if I don't feel good about the impact, and so yeah. it'll, it'll fulfill me in that, in that way. Um, yeah. And so like, it's a 15-year it's a process of <laughs> learning about yourself you're like you know you always in hindsight you would go well couldn't i have fast forwarded through some of this right <laughs> yeah. and um you know for me no i i had to i had to discover myself through trial and error you know the um the phrase i talk use often is inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense and <laughs> yeah. what, I, what i like about that is you're, you're naming why the past makes sense because it's the advantage training as you say and it's not just you figuring out the stuff you're good at. It's also going, okay, I never need to do that ever again. I never need to sure. talk to that person or that type of person. I never need to do, you know, I, it's clear that this is not my path. That is also a form of advantage training, what you're saying no to as well as what you're saying yes to. Mm -hmm. um. Hey, Tony, you you said you, know, you, you had a comfortable life and been called back to be CEO mm. of Medium, which is a, I, I would call it, I would call it a publishing company. Is that what you call it as well? Let's call it a publishing platform. Yeah. Yeah. Publishing platform. Um, and it feels like that probably means it's not a comfortable life. It might be a fulfilling and impact filled life, but not necessarily comfortable. I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering what you had to say no to when you said yes to taking on the CEO ship of Medium? Well, during the pandemic, we had this discovery about how to live. And one of the, our, the really nice discoveries is how much we like our family. And mm. so one of the things that we end up, that my partner Sarah and I end up doing quite often is going up to Boston where her brother lives and potting with them for weeks at a time. I used to just see them at ho like family holidays where you're like, barely crossing paths. It was a completely different experience to live with them. And um, so we're, anyways, we're much closer to family. And I started the interview process while I was up there. And so her brother is in tech. He's the CTO of a fairly large company. 
and understands everything that's going on, understands the opportunity for me here. And he said half jokingly and in a loving way, he goes, you know, part of me doesn't want you to get this job because so much of the family dynamic relies on how much flexibility you have. And so sure enough, I took his oldest son on a Saturday. I took him to um, play to a basketball game to he was um, to a game that he was going to play in. And this was going to be my first time to see him play basketball. Basketball is the sport that I love more than other any (laughs) other. He had picked it up in the pandemic. So he had been playing basically by himself or against me and nobody else. So this is the first time he's on a team and I go to the, the game and immediately get a phone call from the chairman, then CEO of Medium. That's like one of these key phone calls. And so I leave the gym. I I've still never seen him play. Uh, and um, uh, I mean, I'm having, I'm like pausing here because like that's sad for me. Yeah. Yeah, what am I going to miss? I, Sarah and I don't have kids, so like probably you know a lot of people would be like, "Well, you're miss you know time with your kids," but I'm gonna miss time with my family, with my friends. Yeah. Um, I worry a lot about how it affects health. You know that uh, to have unlimited time to work out is very different than to have limited time and to already to come you know come to the workout already exhausted. Yeah. Um, uh, the price is and, real. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yet, it was not a difficult decision. <laughs> um, so. Because why? What, what do you imagine the impact is you have as you are lead medium into its next phase? There is something emerging in the world right now around... Um, realizing how many how much of online publishing people have sort of abdicated responsibility for the impact and it, it and this reaches the highest level so i'll say first of all my my original um touch point with publishing came in a job i didn't mention in my bio is i worked for this company o'reilly media which is a tech publisher oh, yeah. oh, before tech information was as available online. So essentially all programming for a period of time was done by programmers who had O'Reilly books, physical right. books on their and on a really their distinctive commonality yeah. to the, the look and the feel of it. I remember those. Right. Yeah. So now I I think there's such a great counterpoint to this period right now where, you know, we're worried I often hear about the importance of free speech. And I and and platform people especially are like well, there, you know, it's the, um, uh, you know, we're going to put a bunch of ideas out and let them compete and the best ideas will win. And I think what we found is the best ideas don't win. Right. And um, the loudest ideas, the most uh, toxic ideas often are the ones that are winning. So I had seen it this other way, this way that had nothing to do with free speech. That was right. everything to do with manufacturing the best possible answer, not the right answer, but the best possible answer. Because as a programmer, you are referring to these books to figure out how to do what you want to do. So the machinery of O'Reilly was you take a very good programmer and you make them an author. And then you take a very good programmer and you make them the editor of that book. 
And then when the book is done, you send it for tech review to 20 very good subject matter experts. And then you publish it. And then you have a team of bug fixers, essentially, that take reports from the public. Any mistake gets gets uh, tagged, tracked, ticketed, and then fixed, not between um, editions, but between printings. Right. And so that was a company that, like, it wasn't about giving a voice to everyone. It was about, like, finding the ultimate, you know, finding the best possible yeah. um, answer. And so now today you have sort of the platforms don't care. You know, it's the, um, and then, uh, uh, and the, but then even the people you would think would care don't seem to care. You know, that's the, this critique of journalism, the both sidesism. It's like they don't seem to, um, to care that they're leading people astray in the name of objectivity, right? And then in popular publishing, there's been a number of books that, and a number of well-known nonfiction authors in particular who care only about being interesting, not whether or not. So it's like, can you tell a story with these facts, not whether or not the conclusions are, are, right. are, are real. And you know, we're, we're just swamped with information overload. And, you know, and I think we're sort of failing this basic test is all of this information making us smarter sometimes. But what mm. if we had a company that really, uh, that really um, knew how and believed and was dedicated to uh, being a platform for everyone to speak, but that speaking kind of, can be guided towards conclusions or summary that had that actually help people understand topics better, and so that that dual nature of medium had never been fully exposed. I mean, certainly we were a platform for everyone to have a voice, but those voices weren't kind of worked. It to, you know, they didn't work towards some greater yeah. greater yeah. good, and that's something that I understood how to do from my prior experience at O'Reilly and then as a longtime editor at Medium. And so I think we're starting to go in that direction. And I thought, um, you know, first of all, just the impact that Medium can have could be massive. Yeah. Yeah. And if we can set a template for it, then that can be a cultural shift about how we how we nice. think about publishing online. Tony, tell me about the book you've chosen to read for us. Ah, yes. So the book is Once a Runner by... Mm. Uh, um, John L. Parker Jr. And this is a book I first read in college. It's the, it's a, uh, I was a competitive runner, not a good one, sort of a, but on my division three college team, sort of in the life. And yeah. uh, this book is about a, a very good collegiate runner, like champion level collegiate runner who gets suspended from school and has the opportunity to train as hard and as focused as possible ends up being an Olympian, surprising himself and being an Olympian. And so the book resonated sort of in two ways for me in that time is one, the collegiate experience was exactly my collegiate experience to be in a group, the, you know, we, I, you know, the sort of locker room culture has this, reputation for toxicity but also there's like so much goofiness 
to it. Yeah. yeah. And, and so this book was written by someone who ran at Florida State University, and it just pulls from, like, so many anecdotes are pulled from real life, and it just resonated so much. But then as you're working towards something hard, you also dream of being able to do that work in the ideal scenario. Mm. How hard could you push yourself? And so it resonated in that way too. Um, and the passage that I might choose is about identity, which it also was running for me is the thing that changed my identity. Mm. I had, um, uh, I maybe I, probably a lot of people had this identity in school where it's like you thought, I thought it was smart but lazy. And so right. I thought it was great, do well on the test and cheat my way through the homework, <laughs> right? And um, do as little as possible and just skate by and, you know, avoid the wrath of my parents uh, by getting good enough grades, getting, you know, never make anyone afraid I wasn't going to go to college, but I was never really committed to it. And that creates this identity. Like I pathologized it. I thought, oh, I am a lazy person. And it wasn't until I was introduced to running that I... I hit the cognitive dissonance of, wait, why am I running more miles than anyone <laughs> on the team if I'm so lazy? So that it's a, a great, identity. It's already thing. a great story, yeah. Um, and uh, should I should I read? I think you should. You set it up beautifully for us. Certain compliments and observations made him uneasy. He explained that he was just a runner, an athlete, really with an absurdly difficult task. He was not a health nut not out to mold himself a stylishly slim body. He did not live on nuts and berries. If the furnace was hot enough, anything would burn, even Big Macs. He listened carefully to his body and heeded strange requests. Like a pregnant woman, he sometimes sought artichoke hearts, pickled beets, smoked oysters. His daily toil was arduous, satisfying on the whole, but not the bounding, joyous nature romp described in the magazine. Other runners, real runners, understood it quite well. Quinn Cassidy knew what the mystic runners, the joggers, the runner poets, the zen runners, and others of their ilk were talking about, but he also knew that their euphoric selves were generally nowhere to be seen on dark, rainy mornings. They primarily wanted to talk it, not to do it. Cassidy very early on understood that a true runner ran even when he didn't feel like it, and raced when he was supposed to, without excuses and with nothing held back. He ran to win, would die in the process if necessary, and was unimpressed by those who disavowed such a base motivation. You are not allowed to renounce that which you never possess, he thought. The true competitive runner, simmering in his own existential juices, endured this melancholia the only way he knew how. Gently, together with those few others who also endured it, yet very much alone. He ran because it grounded him in basics. There was both life and death in it. It was unadulterated by media hype, trivial cares, political meddling. He suspected it kept him from that most real variety of schizophrenia that the Republic was then spouting like mushrooms on a stump. Running to him was real, the way he did it, the realest thing he knew. It was all joy and woe, hard as a diamond. It made him wary beyond comprehension, but it also made him free. That nailed it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, 
you kind of set this up before you did the reading, but you know, what's at the heart of this for you, do you think, Tony? I mean, I looked at this and I've highlighted this and I've referenced it now for 15 years or more as uh, a, a difference in identity. I mean, to simplify mm -hmm. it, the identity of a competitive runner versus the identity of a, a, um, of a jogger. And the yeah. difference, is, and it's not just the difference, it's the power of identity. So when, um, I, I think a key thing that Quentin is saying in this passage is that he's not spending a lot of time negotiating with himself, mm. right? And uh, a jogger, when they wake up in the morning, if it's rainy, if it's cold, their legs don't feel right, that's a negotiation. Uh, mm. Maybe today is not the day to jog. He already made this decision. He made this decision a long time ago. He's a runner, and therefore... He will do what it needs to be done. Yeah. You know, one of the phrases that you read out, which I wrote down because it was powerful, is uh, in competition, no excuses, nothing held back. Um, yeah. Which is, it's like lack of negotiation then turned up to 11 makes... spinal tap style. Um, right. What does it take to get to that place, do you think? Because I... I'm not sure I've ever done anything, no excuses, nothing held back, willing to live or die. I think this is something that runners or competitive endurance athletes get to experience because the time period is shortened. You know, yeah. to be an entrepreneur, no excuses, it's impossible. So many things pop into your life. You know, it's like, what am I not going to see my parents for <laughs> Christmas? You know, right. um, and, uh, but if you talk about this is a, he's a miler. So we're talking about four minute period. Right? Yeah. And what a competitive runner gets to, which is, I think different the sort of epiphany is that, um, you get there through acceptance. So mm -hmm. I like, a lip. I think a lot of people think you get there through whipping yourself. It's like, right. I might hype myself to go as hard as possible. And, um, uh, runners, I think, are much more distance runners, especially, are much more just uh, matter of fact. My legs are burning. My yeah. vision is darkening, right? Like I'm almost towards the end. Actually, in the World Cross Country Championships um, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, the a woman in the lead. This is a professional runner. Woman in the lead collapsed with 30 meters to go. So she. Had like sort of no problem taking herself to the very mm -hmm. edge yeah. and tipped over. And uh, and everything that I've ever like learned by talking to runners or my own experiences that it is just a thing that's happening to you mm. and not a not as emotionally charged as uh, people might think. Um, and when I read that line, also a thought popped into my head as I was reading it to you, is a, a phrase that I'd heard from Cory Doctorow. Uh, he said, um, it was about, about writer's block. He said, um, if surgeons aren't allowed to get surgeon's block, why are you allowed to get writer's block? Right. And um, kind of just this, like, can you get yourself to this matter-of-fact point, like place, this peaceful place? Yeah. That, that's the thing I want to underline is it's a little bit peaceful. 
yeah. because you're, as we keep using this word negotiating, you're not negotiating, you're just yeah. observing. This is as hard as I can go. I am. Um, I'm wondering how you built that capacity of matter of factness. This is this is the reality, <laughs> rather mm. than trying to negotiate it in your life beyond the the running. Because as you say, as an endurance athlete, it's like four minutes or ten kilometers or a half marathon or whatever it might be. Yeah. And you're like, I've got twenty six point two miles. <laughs> to accept yes. this. Um, yeah. I'm curious to know what you've learned about bringing that into the, the wider world. Well, I actually used to teach this. I mean, this goes back to my uh, coaching world. And I obviously, like a lot of people, had a period of meditation and the meditation helped me connect other things that I had done. Um, but I had realized there was a way to teach meditation a little bit differently. I think meditation is often taught in terms of calm, but there is a, there is a, especially if you do a breath-based meditation, there's this other awareness loop that's going on, which is the point of focus is your breath mm. and uh, you're expected to have your mind wander around it. It's not a bad thing. It's like, it's normal. And uh, in fact, it's better than normal. It's like I would point out to people that every time your mind wanders is an opportunity to practice bringing it back to your point of right. focus. And so what we call this as a mental push-up. Your mind wanders a lot. You got more push-ups in than yeah, the other. More reps, you get more reps in of coming back to presence. Yeah. Right. And so this awareness focus loop is like, oh, I'm aware that something is happening. I acknowledge it, and then I can bring my focus back. That, as a muscle, ends up being really powerful. Um, and I had this experience, um, along with other parts of self-improvement, like sort of therapy and self-acceptance, when I was interviewing for this job. Because, you know, I, I, you know, tech has like a hierarchy sometimes, and it's hard not to buy into it. And so I remember I was one of the people interviewing me was this guy, Ben Horowitz, who, oh, yeah. um, if you know Mark Andreessen, who is the founder of Netflix, Mark Andreessen is now an investor. And the yeah. other name on the investment firm is Ben Horowitz. So this That's is right. like a luminary. <laughs> yes, right. and this is a big dog. <laughs> total big dog. And, um, and the thing that stood out to me about my interview process was that I was never scared mm. because I was like centered from, I, mean, I hate this could be bad news for people for 10 years of being a self-improvement professional, you know, <laughs> and like, right. There's like a lot of self-work went into that. Um, and there was this yeah. one point where like, you know, basically my hypothesis on medium was they just needed to buckle down and focus. And right. so Ben, he asked me like, you know, what's your vision? Like, do you, like, do you see the need for any like big, like pivots or changes? And I was like, I, and I, I, I said to him, Ben, I think that's the wrong question. And, <laughs> and I said it very often, <laughs> right. Especially for me, you know, yeah. like, like, you know, it's like he was on the board because of Evan Williams, who's the founder of Twitter and blogger and medium, is like a big name, like they are peers, right? 
I'm like Ev's friend who <laughs> was successful on Medium, who doesn't really like have that big of a re- like not that level of resume. Okay. And I just like and um, you know, there's a couple of different ways to be strong in these mm-hmm. conversations. Some people are kind of aggro strong, and I was able to have a strength of base, you yeah. know, through meditation, through therapy, through journaling. That when I told him it was the wrong question, like there was, I think what probably came through is I was not afraid to tell him that. Right. And, um, and I think I look back to, you know, how scared I was when I used to interview for jobs or right. how scared I was to push back on authority. There was a um, project manager that I'd worked with early in my career who was like, I don't know, I, I think he was too good looking. And so I <laughs> This is a problem that in. you and I have never had, but okay. <laughs> That's how I feel, right? And so I just like I I couldn't look him in the eyes, let alone disagree with him. You know, like I was right. you, like you couldn't get more of a shrinking violet than like my starting point was so yes. uh so like that's my starting point. Couldn't yeah. look my boss in the eye. Um It's interesting, you know, um it just reminds me of some of my own story. You know, I think of the two starting points, the first kind of jobs yeah. I was going for. And I was fine if the interview was going well, but I remember being interviewed for a job in an advertising company by um, the UK's grandmaster of chess. <laughs> and he was utterly uninterested in my self-deprecating humor and my, you know, my slight <laughs> swagger. And I just kind of fell to pieces. You know, he, he moved yeah. two pieces and I was just like, I was just getting hysterical and trying to <laughs> you know, rescue something from this, this burning ship. Um, and I walked away from that going, oh, I was so interesting how I fell apart in that interview. Uh-huh. The equivalent to your interview with, with Ben was um, being interviewed by Brene Brown on her podcast and unexpectedly having a moment when she goes, okay, so coach me. <laughs> I didn't know she was going to ask me to do that and um you know it was it was one of those moments where oh this is really helpful that i've had 20 years practicing asking a question and then being quiet and being willing to wait for an answer and being less daunted than i might have been otherwise i you know i could have got hysterical (laughs) and i didn't that that is the the kind of the perfect example of um of being at peace with yourself, but also how one of the major ways that that happens is like, yeah. you know, it's like people always want a quick fix, but the most reliable fix is a massive amount of work. Right. Which, which, this, which is what I said and what you just said, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, 20 years of doing this, uh, you had the experience to be like, it's in there. I just <laughs> have to like give it a, a, take a breath and it'll be there. Exactly. I can just notice my own panic and go, I don't actually have to give into that panic. It's like, I, I can notice my vision darkening, but that's just my vision darkening. It's fine. Yeah. I'll just yeah. take another breath. How, how has your presence been tested by the hurly burly of being a new CEO? Um, I was thinking about this a little bit in case we talked about identity and how to change it. And mm. so um, uh, some of the things 
are just uh, are this incredible confidence builders. Like I got the first time I uh, got in front of the whole company is I gave them a speech that I was certain they would not believe. <laughs> but I felt like I had to tell them the truth and let them come to find later that I had told them the truth from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I just thought there's no way, like I'm telling them things that are like outlandish. Like, I mean, the company had been struggling. This is part of, uh, there were a bunch of like very obvious struggles. And I, I came in as a kind of an insider understanding these are all fixable. Yeah. And, uh, and so I'm, like a thing I told them was like, I think this can be a public company. And I was like, why would they believe that? Like they've seen my resume. Like I haven't even come close, you know, like actually like literally I'd never managed managers, like to give right. you a sense of like the jump for me here. Right. And that one might lead them to be a public company. <laughs> come on. Right. But I had done the analysis and I completely believed that it was possible. Um, and then, uh, uh, but then later, more recently, I had um, uh, I had given them, I'd made a change, a sort of a, I saw this opportunity with like Twitter imploding that we should be doing something in this world, Mastodon world. And, um, uh, and I had uh, um, told them, and so I'd launched a project in this world. And I was met with a lot of disbelief. And um, and I realized I was actually quite hurt by this. Yeah. And the difference is that I didn't expect to be believed the first time, but I I did expect to be believed the second time. Because literally, the, the one thing I actually am very good at is getting in early on social media movements and right. getting established. Like That's how I have the job at Medium. Right. got in early got established right and i was like oh right so this is my ego is involved here yeah. um uh that but that goes to what you said it's like now we're old enough we've done enough work to be like oh i'm hurt and all i have to do is acknowledge it take yeah. a breath and then i'm back on doing you know the best you know, the best that I'm able to. What do you, have you invited support in to help you with this bigger role, this shift in identity, mm. this new way of, you know, influencing rather than being hands-on, you know, you're like, you were writing kind of the, the great encyclopedia of self-help things. Now you're managing managers. It's, yeah. um, I'm curious to know, where you go to for support um well i had a i was someone who didn't really like support i think that's why i like self-improvement so much yeah. then i like i like to figure it out on my own but i had um uh an experience early on with this job of all of my friends were so happy for me and so generous that um, I mean, I just leaned into it. So yeah. I had experience, and this started during the interview process, where um, uh, like uh, people would just be like, "Call me," 
And so I had, I remember this one hour, it was like a high school, like I was like a, like, like a stereotypical high school girl on the phone <laughs> with my friend. And so, uh, and who's a CEO of his own company. And he spent an hour in the middle of his workday. Half of it was giving me advice. Another half was just hyping me up about how it's a perfect <laughs> person for this job. And it was like, it was so connected, you know, yeah. it, it was such a gift and I feel so grateful for it. And you know, that's really continued. Um, and, uh, uh, so yeah, I do. Um, I don't know. I, I was wondering if this is connected in any way to worthy goals is like, um, a side effect. I think of many worthy goals is that people want to help you. And yeah. Yeah. But that's the experience I've had here. Yeah. But I think it's true. I think, uh, you know, part of what I say in that book is it's really hard to do a worthy goal alone. <laughs> so you have to figure mm -hmm. out what mm -hmm. are the energies you want to bring in. And, you know, you can have energies in people or you have multiple energies in a person or you can get it from other resources as well. But this idea of being a kind of lone warrior striding out across the tundra is the odds are against you. Um, yeah. But I also think that um, when people see you pick up something that feels like... <laughs> Like Tony is pulling the right sword from the stone. I'm like, I want to, I want to put my hand on his shoulder and go, "This is fantastic! You're the right person for that." It's a, there's a, there's a, a way that that can shine. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's the experience. Yeah. Um, you know, your background, Tony, is um, both, you know, engineer and self-improvement, you know, psychology, mm -hmm. um, how do those two areas of expertise talk to each other? In one good way. And then in one way that, and then in one way that where they sort of create a stumble. So, um, my approach to self-improvement was very systems oriented. That's why I got into self-improvement at the habit level. Mm -hmm. Um, cause I thought about it in terms of systems and, um, you know, processes, uh, checklists, like all of that stuff really appealed to me. Yep. And this is actually an opportunity to tie it back to the book is there's a, a person that now I think we've like, we've talked about this person so many times, but they're now just a myth. A person came to us right as we were starting habit coaching and failed because our whole understanding of behavior change was so wrong and and the the person's goal was that they wanted to stop eating sweets yeah. and so you know the sort of habit coach approach is to um kind of rack up uh days of successes and if there's a failure just simplify it and clarify it so it's like you could start no sweets. How many days in a row can you do? But if you fail, change it to something more specific, a tinier habit. And so we kept kind of shrinking the habit, trying to get something more specific that this person could achieve and whatnot. And so it had gone from no sweets to no sweets before dinner to no sweets before lunch to finally no ice cream, right. cookies, candy bars, the whole thing, but we're just going to have to have ice cream, right? You can snort then, lines of pure sugar. That's fine. Just don't eat ice cream. 
<laughs> and uh exactly right and so uh and you know as part of that it's like well what are your replacement habits like there's all of the systemic work you can do there and so uh we've like really tightened it up we've crisped up the goal to something really yeah. specific for this person and the very next day we get a note from them you're not going to believe this um we're in vermont and my family wanted to tour the Ben and Jerry's ice cream factory. Right. The most famous ice cream factory in Vermont. <laughs> so his only goal is just not to eat ice cream. And the very next day, he's touring an ice cream fa- uh, factory. So uh, <laughs> we're like, well, we're failing here. We're failing yeah. this person. What's going on? And over time, I've thought a lot about this person. What are the other things that are going on? And I think one of them is, at, or it's like, if you go high, sort of, I'd say higher up the stack, you know, yeah. beyond habit, there's belief and identity. Like, um, you know, FOMO is a belief. Well, yeah. this is my only time to tour the Ben and Jerry's family, factory. Or am I someone that puts my family first? Yeah. That's an identity, right? Yeah. So we're, now we're projecting on a false person. We, I don't, we never followed up with this, but I'm projecting onto this person an identity yeah that they put their family first. And so they have said, I'm not going to have ice cream today. But then their family says, we want to go to the Ben and Jerry's factory. So I'm going to say yes. And I'm not going to be a buzzkill by not participating. Right. Exactly. I'm not going to sit in the car, you know, (laughs) I might be part of this. Right. So that is this example of how, who you think you are ends up, defining the choices and the decisions you make. And that's what I thought. That's why um, joggers in the Once a Runner story get sidetracked because they think running is joyous. So what happens when it's not joyous? Quentin Cassidy, you don't think running is joyous at all. You think it's pain in the ass, really painful. He expects that, but his identity is... it's a daily necessity. I am a runner. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting um, you say that, Tony. I'm I'm trying to own the identity of being a writer. And it? even though I've written books, I don't think that makes me a writer. I think that makes me an author. And I'm yeah. trying to think about what what does it mean to be fully committed to being a writer in terms of what I now have to say no to, <laughs> in terms of what I'm entangled with in the rest of my life. And it's exactly what you're talking about, which is, you know, it's um it's a way of me saying this is the non-negotiables about how I show up in my world as a writer. Mm-hmm. This is what my, this is what that identity brings with it, both the, the right. dark and the light, the, the moments of joy and the moments of my legs are heavy. My vision's darkening. <laughs> I'm about to collapse 30 meters from the end. It's like, that's just part of being a, a writer. Um, yeah. It's not, so what, it's what not good every day. True. Yeah, it's not good yeah. every day. It's like, and you know, you and I both know that as writers, that some days it comes and some days it's misery, and it's like they're both the same. It's just writing days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, and I, I wonder for you, I was thinking about the ways that you change identity, and you know, one of mm-hmm. one of them is the cognitive dissonance. You know, right. it's like somehow writing several books that have been successful has not created enough cognitive dissonance that you consider yourself a writer. Right. And that like it goes to show how much how much cognitive dissonance is required for you to reevaluate yourself. Right. Um 
it's kind of speaks to kind of Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy's stuff around immunity to change and the unconscious stuff, unconscious things that you're committed to that you may not realize you're committed to. And I'm like, I'm really committed to having a, uh, too many things on my to-do list. <laughs> yeah. And, Cause it gives me a sense of identity and, yeah. um, and, and I'm trying to make the identity of being writer more important than the identity of being wanted and overwhelmed and busy. That's sure. the, that's that's the competition, and it's like ferocious. <laughs> I think I love yeah. like rationally. That's a really easy choice, but in my bones, it's 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 the two wolves battling out, and I'm trying to figure out which one to feed. I, I as I was sort of ending my like career as a full time self improvement person, yep. I I had tried to become a champion for throwing the kitchen sink at things. It's mm -hmm. like, by all means, look for the one quick fix first, obviously, yeah. right? But then when it doesn't work, then what are you going to do? And I just wanted to get it in people's head that you one option is to do all the work, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, I hear you mentioning mindfulness in that. Like, you're aware now that you desire to be busy and wanted. Yeah, that's yeah. a piece of it, right? Not yeah. the whole piece, but... Certainly, that level of mindfulness ends up being really, really helpful. Then there's a level of acceptance of emotions, which you didn't say, but it is like sort of like, wow, I really need to be wanted today. <laughs> How does that feel in my body? You know, yeah. that's like a, something my therapist has given that's almost like a sarcastic but serious joke in my household. Yeah. Sarah and I will say, but how does it feel in your body? And we're both being sarcastic and being serious when we say it. Exactly. Because it, it's a really good question. Because, uh, you're, you have, you have to be slightly sarcastic. Them. As an intellectual person, you have to be slightly sarcastic to allow the question to actually land. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and we intellectualize our feelings. So we think we're feeling our feelings, but we're not. We're just naming them. Uh, but when you feel them in your body, then you realize, oh, yeah, this is the thing. And... Um, uh, and then, you know, your beliefs, your thought patterns, there's a lot to rewire in there. Um, and maybe if you wrote every day for two years, maybe that's what's required. Right. Yeah. And, uh, then you'd be like, wow, you know, it did it. I am a writer now. I think that's right. I think it yeah. boils down to writing every day and reading every day. I think that's yeah. the essence of being a writer. Um, now I have to put that from theory to practice a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Tony, this, this is, I, I love talking to you, um, so thank you. As a final question, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in our conversation today? Take a breath. <laughs> um, there's a word that came up a bunch of times for us uh, but that we didn't dig into, this word of neg negotiating. Mm. And uh, it's one of the core concepts in how I'd been approaching self-improvement at some point at which was there's a an energy cost to not having made a decision so pre-deciding is the start of lowering that that um decision cost but habits are sort of the end of it right habits beliefs identity once those are actually changed then this like negotiation goes out of your world. And the example that I had used for a long time, or so 
was um, one I think a lot of people have heard is this idea that for a while uh, Steve Jobs wore the same turtleneck every day, right? right yeah. So there's a decision, right? And if you think about your life in terms of a cognitive budget and there's some research that you can wear that out, uh, you start to reduce the number of decisions you have in a day, the more energy you have for other things. And that leads me to an idea that I've long had about what is mastery, right? It's uh, mastery is when you're so good at the basics that, or what is genius even? It's when you're so good at the basics that you can look at a problem from multiple angles because you're not, you're not weighed down by all of the, the details, right? And so like, this goes back to even my intro here is I like to uncover the advantaged yeah. training, right? So it's like, so we, it's easy. People on tech say, oh, Steve Jobs is a genius, right? But there's also a lot of things that he did to um, enable that, right? Yeah. And uh, one of the ways to do that is to reduce the cognitive load of your daily life by getting rid of these negotiations. So um, it's not just you have the identity of being a writer, but everyone in your orbit needs to hold that identity that you are a writer. And then now there's so much support for you, for the decisions and the behaviors that you have to do at that point. What label do you have for yourself right now? I mean, I know you probably got more than one. Most of us do. But what label do you think is most helpful for you doing something thrilling, important, and daunting? What's the label, the self-identifying label that you attach to you that best serves you doing or claiming a worthy goal? Well, flip that exercise. What's the label that keeps you playing small right now? What's the story you've got? that's got you being content with the status quo. And what does that label, whichever one you've chosen, either the, the one that is liberating or the one that is confining, the one that pushes you into the future or the one that keeps you tethered to the present, what does that label allow you to negotiate or not negotiate? I mean, I'm wondering what it could be for me. It could be writer. That's definitely a label I've talked about and thought about a lot in the past. And, you know, the last two years or maybe three years, I've thought, what if I called myself a writer? What would that give me permission to do? And part of it's because I've like, I've had two books come out in the last two years. I've got another two books planned in the next two years. So that's helpful. It could be maker because I realize I'm doing more than just writing books. I'm building systems and ecosystems around books, around ideas. It could be purely fit. <laughs> I'm like trying to, you know, fight age, stay fit, play soccer, go for runs. It could be even husband. You know, my relationship with Marcella is so essential to my life. And how do I be the best version of that? These are all labels that matter to me. But as I say them to you, I see now I've still got work to do on making clear my choices knowing the prizes and punishments of really committing to one or more of those, removing, in other words, the ways I might negotiate against myself, collude with myself in playing small. The two interviews that this one with Tony reminded me most of 
Uh, first of all, Dancing with Ambition uh, with my friend Eric Zimmer. He's a great podcaster himself. His podcast is called The Two Wolves. And uh, he has such an amazing story. I look at him as a kind of an elder in my life, someone who's wise and kind of showing an interesting path forward. So definitely I recommend that. And then Jessica Abel, who's one of the real forces for creativity. Um, that um, podcast is called How to Survive Being Creative. Now, if you'd like more of Tony, he's on Mastodon, the uh, Twitter equivalent, and also on Medium, where he still writes a lot and is influential and is the CEO. And it's uh, Coach Tony. You'll find that at coachtony.medium.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for loving the podcast. Thank you for recommending episodes. Thank you for um, writing reviews and blurbs and stars. That helps as well. You're awesome and you're doing great.